0: Well, thank you very much for that, Ivar. Ivar didn't mention that he's also a trustee of HEPI, which may uh, be another reason why uh, I've been invited to speak today. It's a huge privilege to uh, give this second annual HEPI um, Access Lecture, uh, sorry, a unit Access Lecture. (laughs) We can make it our own over time. Um, It is an important topic, as I've said. And I'm delighted that UNIV has decided to make it a permanent feature of the academic calendar. And I congratulate uh, the master and the college for doing this. I begin with the proposition, and there are no surprises here, that entry into higher education is unfair, going to university at all, and also the university that you go to. And by that, I mean that some groups are very much more likely to go to university than others, and that some groups are very much more likely to go to highly selective universities than others. And I hear some of you already muttering that that's not unfair because there are reasons for that. Well, there are reasons. There may be reasons for those discrepancies, but um, that doesn't make them fair. And anyway, I'm up here, you're down there, and tonight (laughs) words will mean what I choose them to mean. (laughs) And uh, I'm going to examine some of these unfairnesses. And I'll begin by examining who goes to university and who doesn't go to university. If you're male, you're far less likely to go to university than if you're female. Now, there are reasons for that, of course, uh, mainly that girls do very much better at school. But as you'll gather from this uh, slide, it hasn't always been that way. A few, if, if, if it were to continue a few years to the, uh, to the left, um, uh, the lines would cross. Uh, And unless you believe that inherently males have become more stupid than females, um, uh, uh, then this is a discrepancy that needs to be understood and explained um, and, I assume, eventually resolved. And incidentally, the problem is more complex than you may think, since it's not only in this country that this is so. This is um, a chart produced by the OECD um, uh, and relates only to OECD countries. But I can assure you that it's the same pattern. If you look even at the Arab countries, it's the same pattern of uh, underperformance of males and um, and the uh, the outperformance of males by females. Um, if you're, in case you're interested, uh, there is a very small number of countries here where where, where males are still dominant. But um, you'll see that it's it, it's 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 pretty consistent. And this is the UK here. And I always thought how nice it must be to be a boy at university in Iceland uh, over over, uh, over there. Um, Now these subtleties though of the differences and the reasons for them were lost on the Sun newspaper when we published our report on the relative achievement (laughs) of males and females. And I thought this was an excellent piece of self-mockery on the part of of the Sun. Now the second the second discrepancy that I want to refer to um, whether or not you go to university depends to some extent on when you were born. You're very much more likely to go to university uh, if you're born in September than if you're born in August, as you'll see from this graph, about 13% more likely. Now we can have a separate seminar just on this topic. Um, it isn't because of the stars. It's nothing to do with astrology. Uh, nor is it because midwives tend to be on holiday. August, it's because of bureaucratic and administrative rigidity. It's because the rules on starting school mean that little children of four can find themselves in the same class as children 25% older than themselves. And there's ample research evidence that the the documents, the discouraging and harmful effect that this can have, not in all cases, obviously, but on the 31st of August. But but, uh, but, uh, uh, the the, the harmful and uh, discouraging effect that this can have on the smaller children. And also, the second reason, by and large, um, uh, it's impossible for children to stay back and do the year again if they're not ready to move forward to the next year. We're unduly rigid in this country about that. Now, this is a discrepancy with a quite different cause to the others. And this one is actually quite easy to resolve. It arises from bureaucratic inertia. And as a result of that inertia, HEFCE, the Higher Education Funding Council for England, has estimated that something like 10,000 children a year who might otherwise have gone to university don't do so. Now people sometimes laugh when I mention this as a serious issue, but what makes it in some ways even more serious uh, is that it's a problem unlike the others that's entirely created by ourselves and doesn't have its roots in deep and intractable social issues. And, of course, the biggest unfairness of all uh, is that between social groups. That disparity is well known and there are many ways of looking at it. We in this country tend to look at social class differences because class is our obsession. But fundamentally social class is one way of looking at economic privilege and economic disadvantage. There are others and where you happen to live is in many ways a better one. Now this this chart is based on an analysis that categorizes and groups each parliamentary ward in the country into one of 150 types with similar characteristics. Um, And um, uh, each one of these is is, is one of these 150 um, types and this is the likelihood of going to university. And you'll see that on the right uh, there are some areas uh, where virtually everybody goes to university and on the left where virtually nobody does. And I can tell you that Uh, This on the right is OX26 and uh, the one on the left is OX4. I know that because I've been down my street and there's not a single house in my street where the children uh, of university age didn't go to university and in most cases where the parents did as well. And on the other hand, Jean, my wife, taught in Cowley on the edge of Blackbird Lees and there were whole areas there where nobody went to university. Now these are examples of disparities, and i describe these as unfairnesses in terms of who goes to university. In terms of what university uh, people go to, I return to that later in my talk, but you won't be surprised that some of these very disparities that I've uh, just described in terms of going to university at all are repeated, particularly the disparity that implicates social uh, and uh, class and economic privilege. Does it matter that, going, that university admission is unfair? Yes, it does matter. It matters very much indeed. Going to university has a huge impact on your life chances, probably more on, in this country than in many others. There are obvious economic advantages. The, um, according to the OECD, uh, the graduate salary premium, the difference between what graduates earn and what non-graduates earn, is greater in England than in almost any other country um, in the OECD area, particularly for women. Thank <laughs> you. And as more jobs become graduate jobs, so the imperative to go to university increases. And graduates are far less likely to be unemployed than non-graduates. There's a headline today about graduate unemployment. But if you look under the headline, it's still far less than, uh, than uh, among young people, than among um, uh, non-graduates of the same age. But it's not only economic benefit. There are studies also that show how going to university uh, has a huge impact on other aspects of your life. For example, the likelihood of good mental health. I these uh, slides are fairly uh, self-evident by and large on the left. uh, The less uh, educated on the right uh, are increasing levels of education. Um, and, and these are based on very sound data: the um, National Child Development Study, that was a cohort of everybody born in a week in uh, in a particular year, uh, repeated um, twice. Um, having um, so that's mental uh, health, uh, physica- physical health um, uh, uh, problems, bringing up children. All I have to say that came as a slight surprise to me. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, um, uh, 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 having more progressive social attitudes. That's uh, this one is about. Uh, voting it's um, it's 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 significant but perhaps not marked but here's much more marked one attitudes to race and gender equality I could go on but I don't suppose anybody will be surprised uh, at that that's about going to university. As far as what university you attend is concerned, because because we're here in Oxford, uh, let's limit ourselves to Oxford and Cambridge. The Sutton Trust carried out a study two years ago and found that 45% of top journalists, 27% of MPs, and nearly half uh, QCs, um, and presumably other similar professions were educated at Oxford or Cambridge. So, of course, going to university makes a huge difference to your life, and the university that you go to makes a huge difference as well. And as I said, it's hugely unequal, unfair in both respects. So yes, things are unfair, but there has been progress. Certainly there appears to have been some progress as far as widening participation is concerned. As as the master said, and let me just emphasize, there's a distinction, what I call it, uh, there's a distinction between um, uh, what I call widening participation, which is about getting a wider range of people into university, into higher education at all, particularly from the more disadvantaged uh, social groups, and fair access, um, uh, which is about getting people from all social groups into uh, the most prestigious elite universities and ensuring that the doors of those universities are opened as widely as possible. As far as widening participation, the first of those is concerned. There's evidence there's been some progress. HEFSI produced a study last year that showed, um, as you'll see from this chart, that there's been a greater than 30% uh, increase in six years in participation in higher education among students from the most disadvantaged groups. That's more than double the uh, increase in participation in the population more generally. That's a very subtle very rapid and very welcome uh, increase. Related to this, perhaps, is the fact that there are increasing numbers uh, of people coming into university with unconventional uh, uh, educational backgrounds. I won't put it more strongly than that, Uh, let's just take it that they're unconventional. A few years ago, UCAS uh, introduced a a system of awarding tariff points to different uh, qualifications to replace the old A-level point system, and that was in recognition of the much wider range of qualifications with which people come into higher education. So for example three grade A's at A level equates to 360 uh, UCAS tariff points. Does anybody have any idea what the modal number is of tariff points of people entering higher education through UCAS? I hate silences so I'll tell you. Okay, the modal number that is to say the the number of tariff points possessed by the largest group by a large margin, is zero. 35% of all entrants to university through the UCAS system last year had zero tariff points. They had no recognised qualifications, or at least no qualifications recognised by UCAS. As you can imagine, it's a little more complicated than that, but nevertheless, it's a very startling and a very substantial fact, and suggests that universities are indeed opening their doors more widely than they may previously have done. Now that's two-edged, I have to say, because I've no doubt that when we publish this, uh, this information, as we will be doing next week, and when the Daily Telegraph and the Daily Mail get hold of it, they'll use it as a stick with which to beat universities and to justify cutting their fine funding, closing their doors and reducing opportunity. They will describe this as a reduction in standards. That will be a pity. One of the unique uh, features of higher education in England is the way it provides opportunities to people who might have missed out on education first time round who may be perfectly capable of benefiting from higher education but who have not got traditional qualifications. Now, whether these opening doors are going to be slammed shut in the very near future is a moot point. I suspect that that is what is already happening. Can the widening participation that we've seen recently be sustained as we enter this period of austerity that's being imposed upon us? It's a fact, as Sir David Watson has repeatedly pointed out, uh, Sir David Watson now uh, um, principal of uh, Green Templeton, uh, that higher education only opens its doors more widely to groups previously excluded. Widening participation is only achieved um, at times when the sector as a whole is growing. By and large, the middle classes will not give up their privileges, and so the system can only be opened up more widely um, uh, when, uh, when, when numbers overall are growing. And the government has already made it clear that it intends at least to constrain, if not to contract, the system in the future. And so I think it must be doubtful whether the gains um, that have been made recently uh, will uh, be sustained. As far as fair access is concerned, that is to say the opening up of the elite universities to a wider population, the story is sadly far less good. The widening participation that I have just described is largely confined to the less prestigious universities. The Office for Fair Access uh, recently produced an excellent report that showed that the proportion of students from the least privileged backgrounds attending the Russell Group in the 1994 group of universities, that is to say the most research intensive and prestigious has not shifted in 15 years and indeed if anything has declined despite the increases in the overall proportion of young people from these backgrounds going to university here is the conclusion of the research commissioned by the office for fair access I won't uh, read it um, uh, all but uh, I'll leave it there for you to look at Um, and this incidentally is a conclusion that Hepi had um, uh, independently published a couple of years earlier Um, And this uh, this was in the context of bursaries um, and uh, it was looking particularly at the effect that that the university providing bursaries had on widening participation and improving access. So I wonder what lessons there are here for UNIV. What is the purpose of the very generous bursaries that you make available and which every year I'm urged to uh, contribute to? Um, It certainly isn't uh, uh, to to widen participation or achieve fair access, Um, but actually there could be a reasonable justification if it's to enable students from poorer backgrounds to buy their round in the beer cellar alongside their more privileged uh, fellow uh, students and and, and, and things like that. But let's be quite clear and explicit about this. That's what it should be for Um, uh, and we might then model it and shape it differently if we're quite clear that that's what it's for, not in order to achieve uh, fair access or widened participation. So, on the face of it, and in reality, we have a problem as far as uh, fair access is concerned. But we need to be quite clear about the source, the sources of, uh, of that problem. They, these are extremely selective universities, and because in England, unlike in much of the rest of the world, universities are free to select which students they admit, and students are free to uh, to, to 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 attend whatever university they choose to attend to that prepared to take them. Um, and that's different in this country from many other countries over time a hierarchy has developed based very largely on school achievement on the A levels needed to get into that particular university here as with so much else in higher education what happens in higher education is subordinate to or dependent upon uh, what happens at school if children don't achieve at school then they're unlikely to progress subsequently as much as well as those that do and there's ample evidence sadly, that far too many pupils don't fulfil their potential at school. You'll see from this table that a very large proportion of pupils who achieved well at GCSE don't nevertheless go on to take A Levels or other Level 3 qualifications. Indeed, even uh, 10% of those with um, with 10 or more uh, uh, GCSE grade A-star to C don't even stay on at school beyond the age of 16. Um, uh, uh, and you'll see from, from, from this that, um, uh, uh, that, that, that even fewer, of course, go to university. As many as 26% of those with, uh, with 10 or more um, uh, GCSEs don't go to university. And uh, even eight, more than half of those with 8 or more GCSEs don't. Interestingly, uh, though, the corollary is also true. Once uh, Level 3 qualifications have been achieved, uh, most of the differences between the social groups is, uh, are eliminated. It is getting to that point that makes the difference. Um, uh, once you've got to that point, uh, what, whatever your social background, uh, it seems to make far less different. By and large, progression beyond GCSE is a function of family background. So the answer isn't to beat universities about the head for failing to admit pupils from poor backgrounds. But it's to raise the ambitions and the achievement of pupils at school. It's taken time, but there's good understanding now, even at the top of the government, about where the problem lies. But all we've had since then, quite honestly, is crocodile tears from the government. And with the winding up, in particular, of the Aim Higher programme, we've lost the one Program that, that was centrally funded that recognized uh, and attempted to address the problem by going into schools to raise aspirations. Here's an example of an Aim Higher initiative. Professor Fluffy, um, who used to go into primary schools uh, in Liverpool and encourage children to think that university is normal, and well, hardly normal, is fun anyway, is fun, um, uh, uh, despite The rhetoric, widening participation and fair access are major casualties of the new ideology that governs higher education and public life more generally. Now, what I've said so far is about the wider higher education sector, uh, a sector of which Oxford is an illustrious member, but it's not limited to Oxford. In many senses, Oxford is uninteresting because it's so exceptional. If we're interested in higher education in in the UK, we do well to steer clear of a discussion about Oxford and Cambridge, and generally I do so. But nevertheless, I'm here, and you've been good enough to invite me to speak to you, so I will speak a little about Oxford. There's no doubt that Oxford is an extraordinary university that provides an extraordinary education to those who are fortunate enough to to attend it and whose students do disproportionately well in their subsequent lives. That's why it's so important that access to Oxford should be scrupulously fair. Is it fair? Well, on the face of it, we have a problem with just 9.8% of students from Oxford coming from the poorest backgrounds, whereas in the university system as a whole, some 29.8% of students are from such backgrounds. And this fact has been used by those who wish Oxford ill to criticize the university. We had the unedifying site a year or two ago when uh, John Denham, uh, the then Secretary of State, laid about Oxford and Cambridge, and the chancellor of this university, in my view, was unwise enough to be drawn into the scrap as was the the head of admissions uh, here um, uh, as was the Vice-Chancellor of Interesting, gentleman responded by criticising the university for setting its sights too low. Actually, for setting its sights too high, you could argue, was the uh, was the criticism that he had of Oxford. Um, and the Vice-Chancellor of Oxford, um, uh, the Vice-Chancellor of Cambridge, joined in. Um, more recently, as the master said, um, David Lammy, the former Minister of Higher Education, was observing that there were few, if any, black students in Oxford and uh, I- implicitly um, accusing the university of racism. Uh, and... Um, uh, And, of course, we all remember when the then-Chancellor of the Exchequer, subsequently uh, the Prime Minister, invented the Laura Spence scandal, which touched a national nerve, and had the Sun newspaper, among others, joining in to kick Oxford in the shins we all know and they knew perfectly well that the issue was not a straightforward one of prejudice and snobbery on the part of Oxford um, and uh, its admissions processes but it was due to differential school achievement by young people from different social groups and attending different types of school. So the reason that Oxford is socially elitist, which it is, is because it's educationally elitist and you'll see that from this rather old chart but one that nevertheless tells the story eloquently. Here we have each bar is one university, every university in the country, and the um, the the y-axis is the number of A-level point scores. You can tell this an old chart because it refers to A-levels, but it's still valid. Uh, the number of A-level points uh, of um, of its students on average on entry. Um, <coughs> And you'll so see that there are two universities on the far left where pretty well everybody has maximum A-level points. And this chart um, overlays on that one a colour scheme that shows the social mix of students at each university. And you'll see, and there are no surprises, that the more academically demanding a university, the posher the student body. Blue is posh and red is <laughs> red is n- not on this uh, on this chart and by the way um, this social stratification of universities by social background um, uh, by background of its students gave rise to one of the most um, I suppose offensive but also quite amusing uh, um, for a sports crowd chants which was related to me by my daughter who was at Manchester during the reign of Sir Martin Harris who's uh, here tonight. Um, uh, uh, um, Manchester University were playing rugby against Manchester Met. Um, uh, which Janet Beer I think was in charge or pretty well in charge at the time um, before she came to Oxford and at odd points during the match the Manchester University students would turn and face the Manchester just to met students and chant at them, "Your dad works for my dad."." <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, Martin, it's true) <laughs> uh, <laughs> Unfortunately, the effect apparently was to galvanize the Manchester Met rugby team. (laughs) So long as independent schools produce pupils with higher grades, so long as the better off social groups do well, uh, do better at school, then this will continue. There is a solution that's urged by some if we can't address these disparities and that's to force elite universities to take students by quota. That's what has been suggested effectively by Simon Hughes in his ill-informed and ill-thought-through and frankly politically grandstanding comments about this question. Most people think, and I agree, that that would be an unwarranted intrusion into the autonomy of universities. But having said all that, I want to make two points. The first point. Is that it's true that higher education is about academic selection but to the extent that it's about academic selection it's about trying to identify academic potential. It's not a prize for having done well in the past as is implied by those who complain when it's suggested the university should take some account of the context within which applicants achieved what they achieved at school. It's true that the past is a useful indicator of future achievement but that's all it is. It's not in itself what's being recognized in the offer of a place. It's an indicator and it's legitimate to look to see what other indicators there may be. That's why a university like this one goes through endless processes trying to make fine distinctions between students who achieve the highest academic levels at school and by the admission of many who undertake this process they probably get it wrong as often as they get it right. Quite honestly those who try to make these distinctions are dancing on the head of a pin with increasingly fine distinctions based on completely inadequate information. Grade A at A level is now the most Total grade. And so most selecting universities, not just Oxford, but particularly a university like this, has to look at other discriminators. They look at GCSE results. Oxford now wants applicants to have the A-star at A level. And in passing, that's a shocking decision, considering how flaky the A-star grade and the criteria for its award are. Uh, effectively, what you're doing by making that decision is to hand uh, the um, the decision about who goes to Oxford to the examination boards, rather than making judgments yourselves. You look at the other things that students uh, have done well at school and everyone that comes here now has been in the orchestra, has acted, edited the school newspaper and so on, which incidentally also puts at a huge disadvantage those attending um, those schools where the opportunities for these activities uh, are limited. But despite this there's no confidence that the right students are admitted and the wrong ones are not rejected. And indeed there is one respect in which admissions decisions are certainly wrong uh, here. If the criterion for admissions is the likelihood of academic success, if that's the basis on which marginal decisions between two outstanding candidates um, are made, as as, as is what the Oxford admissions policy insists must be the case, then there are too many students here who went to independent schools. Now, I'm quite aware that I need to be careful, as I have no doubt that many here will will feel threatened by that statement. So I need to make absolutely clear I'm not referring to anybody here, though though it's quite possible that you may know Um, somebody uh, that this does refer to. (laughs) We. We. We, we carried out research some time ago now that showed that independently educated pupils obtain worse degree results than their state school counterparts with equivalent A-level grades. These are the A-level grades. Uh, this is the likelihood of getting a two, one, or higher. And these are the different types of school. And you'll see that the independent school pupils, a for grade for grade, consistently um, uh, perform worse, even at the top. Although it does narrow a bit at the top, uh, worse than, uh, than 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 pupils. Uh, who went to other schools and this as I say is a research that we did uh, some years ago um, the Sutton Trust uh, in the last month have produced um, research independently that confirms uh, these findings uh, based on, on, on new data. Actually, that's not surprising. If you think of two identical twins, one sent to an independent school, one to a state school, it would frankly be shocking if the one that went to the independent school didn't do better at school at the end of their schooling uh, than the one that went to the, uh, to, to the comprehensive school. Um, uh, but when they both go to university, you'd expect that difference to narrow somewhat, if not completely be eradicated. So you'd expect state school pupils, grade for grade, to be admitted relatively more uh, readily to to, to this university than independent school pupils, but in fact it's the other way round at present. The discrepancy isn't huge, but it's in the wrong direction. But in any case, it's taking far too narrow a view of admissions to these great universities to assert, as Oxford does, that the only consideration should be academic prowess. And that that's all there is to it. If we're not to... Sorry. For a start, when making choices between competing and very able candidates, marginal decisions about academic potential is a hopeless task. If we are not to deny universities the freedom to make their own decisions about selection and, as I've said, that would be a major infringement on the traditional autonomy of universities, then one approach that would be more equitable and certainly no less efficient, and more efficient than the present, would be to settle the matter by lottery between all those who achieve the minimum academic threshold required by the university. That would be one approach. I suggest that a better approach would be for these universities to recognise they play a unique role in society in educating and preparing tomorrow's leaders. As it happens, HEPI last year produced a report about Oxford and Cambridge that showed how remarkable they are in many ways, and we've discussed that. There are few universities like them anywhere in the world, but there are some, chiefly in the USA. Let me quote the presidents of Harvard and Princeton, who unashamedly engage in social engineering and favor students from ethnic Uh, minorities and socially disadvantaged backgrounds if everything else is equal. I think this warrants me spending a moment, and I will read it, therefore. Above all, merit must be defined in light of what educational uh, institutions are trying to accomplish. In our view, race is relevant. They don't say um, social background, but they do it in the book, in this quote. Race is relevant in determining which candidates merit admission because taking account of race helps institutions achieve three objectives central to their mission, one of which is addressing long-term societal needs. They go on to say... Moreover, such quantitative uh, um, uh, measures, and they're talking here about A-levels and things, and SATs in the American context, are even less useful in answering other questions relevant to the admissions process. They insist that these are relevant to the admissions process, and that includes um, uh, the contribution that people are going to make to their communities later in life. They see this... They're explicit that such considerations are relevant to the admissions process. They won't compromise their academic standards, but they see that they need to have as a special, as a, as a specific policy objective to try to ensure that the leaders of tomorrow that they educate are representative of as wide a spectrum of society as possible. Call it social engineering. Call it positive discrimination. Call it whatever you like. They see it. Now, Princeton and Harvard are not bad universities. They've to stay, not bad, despite implementing these policies that so concern people that oppose what they call social engineering. I suggest that this university and others like it should be doing the same. Indeed, many admissions tutors tell me quietly that this is precisely what they do. Well, why not come out and say so? Here, as in so much of our public policy, people are driven by fear of what the Daily Mail will say. It should be a policy of this university, and it should be an explicit and unashamed policy. Let's be quite clear, I'm not talking here about wholesale replacement of academic criteria with social criteria. What I am suggesting is a modest, a self-evident even, measure that's supported by research evidence. I worry, and this worry is reinforced by some of the arguments deployed against such a proposition, that opposition to this proposal is based on fear. Fear of losing privilege and fear of the un washed. But actually, I want to get away from what is an increasingly polarized and in my view futile, uh, sterile discussion about whether undergraduate admissions to Oxford are fair and to ask the question, what is the point of Oxford? Specifically, what is the point of an elite undergraduate education for a very small number of people? Would it matter if we didn't have two universities in this country that perform this function? Would the public interest suffer? Bear in mind that the majority of countries don't have a system such as ours with two universities providing such an intensive and extraordinary education for such a small number of students and providing uh, an education for the country's elite to the extent that we do here. And most other countries thrive despite this lack and indeed many of them are more successful than we are. And let us remember that also that we pay a heavy price for the existence of Oxford and Cambridge as undergraduate universities in terms of the part that they play in perpetuating the social divisions that disfigure our country. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm emphatically not saying that these two universities don't provide an outstanding education. There's no question that they're remarkable in that respect. What I'm asking is whether it would matter very much if the very small number of graduates that they produce were educated in other universities instead. Would the country be poorer for that? What would be the balance of advantage? It's a question that I think is worth asking and it needs to be answered. But what I am absolutely sure about is if we we are to keep undergraduate education in Oxford, then we should be willing to go down the route of Princeton, Harvard, and the other great American universities, and recognize that the societal role that this university plays, and the fact that it does confer privilege uh, on its graduates, um, uh, and, and so it should seek to emulate those American universities by taking account of the needs of society in making decisions about those on whom to confer its privileges. Actually I have a solution to the Oxford problem um, and that is that it should stop providing undergraduate uh, uh, um, undergraduate education and that it should become a postgraduate university that would sidestep the question of this uh, social elitism that Oxford's accused of and it would also resolve the complaint that's heard so often here that despite its huge wealth, the university loses money on undergraduate education and that the fees that it's allowed to charge are inadequate for its needs. There are already postgraduate colleges, so why not all colleges as postgraduate colleges? The experience of postgraduate students in postgraduate colleges can be excellent. I challenge the undergraduate colleges. To say the same about their postgraduates. The reputation of Oxford at present is of providing an extraordinary undergraduate education and doing outstanding research. But over the university as a whole, um, and I exclude uni from this, of course, of letting down its postgraduate students. At present, postgraduate education, especially provision for master's students, is often seen as a cynical exploitation of Oxford's reputation, to milk it for the income that it brings. Whatever the future of undergraduate education, unless this improves, it will harm Oxford's reputation overall. So I ask the question, what would be lost if Oxford became a postgraduate university? We should think very carefully before answering that question. It's not sufficient to say that things are done at present because they've always been that way, which anyway isn't true. Uh, nor is it sufficient to say that academic staff enjoy teaching undergraduate students. The university doesn't exist for the benefit of its staff, whatever the rhetoric about the university being no more than a community of scholars. Again, I don't have a prescription, this may be wrong, but it's something that I think should be uh, considered. Now, it would be surprising if a lecture on the fairness of admission to university didn't touch on the question of student fees and the new fee regime and its impact on fairness of admission to university. Uh, In view of the time, I will pass by whether or not fees of £9,000 per year will deter people, particularly people from disadvantaged backgrounds, from going to university. That was the concern when fees were first introduced in 1998 and, again, when they were increased to £3,000 in 2006. Um, uh, And in both cases, there's good evidence uh, that the increase in fees had no impact on participation. Of course, trebling fees from £3,000 to £9,000, which is the level that we expect most universities to set. Um, uh, but the government doesn't expect it, but we expect it, at least doubling, if not travelling. Uh, that may be an entirely different kettle of fish, uh, and the past may provide no guide to the future, but the truth is that we don't know. I'll pass by the fact that uh, the original justification for the new arrangement was that the government needed to reduce public borrowing. The fact is, as we and others have pointed out, the new arrangements are as likely to cost uh, the government money in the long term as to save it money. But because the cost will become apparent in the future when loan repayments aren't coming in as fast as um, planned, that will be somebody else's problem. A different government and a different set of taxpayers and a different set of voters. Call me cynical if you like, but uh, that is so. I'll pass by the offensive ideology, (laughs) the offensive ideology that asserts that the state has no business funding teaching, with the implication that higher education provides essentially private benefits and that the public benefits are not worth paying for. To be fair, that's not explicit in what the government has said or done, but it's a reasonable construction. And what is explicit is that the market should be the only hand that guides the uh, development of the university system and that the public interest should pay no role. All I will say about the new fee regime is that it represents a massive intergenerational transfer of liability and cost from the older generations to the younger, from the past to the future. Looking around this room, uh, many of us benefited from higher education, paid for out of taxation, which itself was paid by generations older than ourselves. We've now moved to a situation we will under the new fee regime, where explicitly to avoid higher taxes for those who are in work today, the older generations, future generations of graduates, when they're in work, will have to pay a nine percent surcharge, a tax surcharge, on all their income over twenty-one thousand until their loans are repaid. Over a lifetime, it may not be much compared to what they will actually earn in total. Professor Nick Barr of the LSE estimates that the average graduate, a uh, 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 person graduating today, will pay about a million pounds in taxes throughout their working life, and that the new arrangements will add about eighteen thousand pounds to that. In that context it may not seem uh, that big a deal. And there's no doubt in my mind also that those who benefit from higher education should contribute to the cost. So I have no argument against fees in themselves. And I have to tell you also that uh, that the arrangements that we have today, in some respects, the mechanics of it are among the most progressive in the world, that students pay nothing uh, when they enter university, where the government pays everything on their behalf and they only repay the government when they're in work and earning over a certain threshold of income. All that is positive but the unfairness of the new arrangements where as I say in order to avoid the future generations having to pay um, more uh, in order to avoid the older generation sorry having to pay more tax the entire cost of higher education of teaching is put on future generations whose tax will be increased the unfairness of that is staggering and unprecedented in my experience and it's particularly ironic this policy is presided over by David Willits a wise and generally humane and sensible man, who wrote a book last year called The Pinch, How the Baby Boomers Stole Their Children's Future. Here with this policy, the wrong that he wrote about is so eloquently, in in that book, is repeated many times over. Now, I don't think things will improve whatever government's in power, whatever the opposition may say. And let's remember that the Conservative Party were against student fees for a large part of the time when they were in opposition. When the opposition are in government and are faced with a stream of money that they can't afford to do without, then I'm afraid that reality will make it highly unlikely that fees will reduce. It could well be that public funding uh, will be reintroduced, and the chief executive of Hefsi, in what was perhaps a deliberately unguarded moment, said as much to the assembled vice-chancellors at the HEFSI Annual Conference. But the history of the United States is that every time public funding reduces, fees go up, but when the better times return and public funding is increased again, uh, fees never reduce. I see the master looking anxiously at his watch, um, so I'll discard the second half of my talk tonight. Uh, <laughs> and. Um, Ladies and gentlemen, I thank you for listening to me. Uh, Thank you, Master, for inviting me to speak uh, tonight. I hope that what I've said doesn't cause indigestion and that you can enjoy the rest of the evening and the drinks and dinner that you've so generously offered to us. Thank you very much.